Good morning. I'm excited to be here. I'm, I'm excited to be here because of what we just saw. That was actually been on my list for a long time. I love it when the students are here and they do an amazing job. And in fact, in fact, if we could one more time just give a nice round of applause to our amazing RVA students. Yeah. I, th I think if we could, w one of the things we can continue to do is tell them how thankful we are for them giving back. Because what they do from scriptures to music to a million things that they do at the school, uh, the community service is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. My name is Jeff Jackson, and, and right now I'm the associate superintendent for the Oregon Conference. And really what that means is there are, there are 32 schools in, in Oregon and southwest Washington, I specifically get to work with 10 of them, and, and the 10 kind of south of Salem, actually south of Eugene are the schools that I get to work with. So, so pretty much every day, I get to wake up and get in a car and drive to a different school. And I get to hang out there and, and, and work with those students and work with those teachers and then work with the teachers after school, and then I get in my car and I drive home. And then I get in my car the next day and I drive to another school, and I get to do that. And, and a year ago, about a year ago right now is when that, that idea uh, started to come together. Um, the amazing David Davies, who's uh, here in, in uh, Medford and is absolutely incredible. It's the job that he had before. And, and this idea of getting to go and work with so many students was, was so exciting. It was so exciting. And diving into it has been so fun. But here's the hardest thing. I get to go to a school, and I get to work with those students but then I drive away knowing I'm not going to get to see them again at the best in about two weeks. But with all the things that come up, maybe three weeks. And that's really hard. It's really hard because it's my passion to work with students. It's my favorite thing in the whole world. I absolutely am convinced it's what God uh, had planned for me. And when we figure out what God has planned for you, man, life is, is so much more fun. Life is so much more fun. And, and going to Rogue Valley and getting to be able to help there uh, and, and my wife, uh, Andrea, has been helping out there. My daughter goes to school there. Every time I would visit that school, it would be harder and harder to leave because I'd get to know the students more and more. And they had so many ideas for things that they want to have happen at that school, and they're such great ideas. They're such great ideas. And, and the crazy thing happened in about January or February or March... Miss Campbell, the amazing Miss Campbell said, you know what, because I'm her superintendent as well, she called me in, Mr. Jackson, I, I'm afraid I think I might be retiring at the end of this year. And I thought, oh no. And she's, she said, would you be willing to consider it? And, and she and I actually prayed right then. We prayed right then. And, and fast forward some time, I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that, that God has planned and opened doors and closed other doors and done all sorts of things. And, and July 1, I have very, very, very circled on my calendar. Because on July 1, I, I have the absolute privilege to officially be the principal of Rogue Valley Adventist Academy, which I'm crazy excited about. Not, not because I have... Oh, thank you. It's, it's very much not about me. It's because I've had a chance to talk with the students, and they have so many good ideas. They have so many good ideas, and all we really want to do as a staff is just find ways to, to help their ideas come true and, and find ways to help them because they're incredible leaders, and we want to we make sure that their, their opportunity to lead is, 
one of the first things that we do there. In fact, if you could do this with me, uh, at 7.30 every day in the Oregon Conference, we have some teacher openings. And, and who we put in front of our students is the most important decision we'll make as superintendents. At 7.30 every day, no matter where we're at, we pray for, for that process, for God to find the exact people to go there, for, for God to open those doors. For, we'll do our work. We'll call lots of people. We'll drive all over checking on, on references and people like that. But ultimately, we want God to be the decision maker for who we put in those positions. And that's all of the Oregon Conference. And so if you're up for it at 7.30 every morning, we, we pray that through no matter where we're at. And what we want is an army of people in prayer. We want an army of people praying for all of our students because we want our schools to be successful, but there's actually one goal. We want to fill heaven. That, that's, actually, that's actually our goal. We, we want to fill heaven. We want to get together and have a huge celebration there. And, and, and so at 7.30, if you could do that, but I have a second thing specifically for this congregation. At 8 o'clock, at 8 o'clock, if you could pray something like this because we have a giant passion to have this church have student activity regularly and we're talking like preaching we're talking like like school takeover sabbath where where the students are in charge of virtually everything and that's a big deal that's a big step and and one of the first things to do when you're when you have to make a big step is to make sure it's covered in prayer and, and, and we want an army of people doing that as well. And I know Pastor Brian is very excited about that idea, and the staff are excited about that idea. Some of the students are warming to that idea. And, and that's where you come in. That's where you come in at 8 a.m. every day. At 8 a.m. every day, we would pray that through because the Holy Spirit is incredible. The Holy Spirit is incredible. He's not going to make anybody do anything, but we'll just ask him to knock a little harder and not stop knocking. J just knock a little bit, maybe get a hammer to hit the door, just, just in a knocking way, so that, so that people feel called to this. Because when you take ownership of what you believe in, it's life-changing. It's life-changing. So I, I wanted to start with, with that piece, um, and then I'd love to start with prayer, and we'll kind of we'll jump in here. Let's, let's bow our heads. Dear God, I want to thank you for being an amazing God. I want to thank you for being a God that always has our back. I thank you for this church and their incredible dedication to so many different things, but especially to the school. I especially want to lift up each one of those students. Uh, we know that you have huge plans for their lives, and so we give all of them to you. And as we get to spend some time here together, help us to have a great time together learning about you. Uh, we, we put all of this in your hands, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a little, a little story, and, and the, the, the title is An Epic Walk, and you have, to, you have to recognize that it's not always a walk, right? It's not always a walk. It could be, it could be all sorts of things. It could be a run or riding a horse or whatever. It's kind of a mode of transportation, but, but an epic walk. Um, I was blessed to be able to go to Adventist education forever, right? And I graduated from Columbia Academy, went two years to Walla Walla, finished at Washington State University when I realized I was going to work at nonprofits and I would never be able to pay off my student loans if I kept on going that direction. Uh, and, and so I graduated from Washington State University. I graduated with a master's in, in education. And, and 
for some reason, promised God that, okay, I'll be a teacher, but I'm not going to work in Adventist education. It was one of those immature things. It was, it was just straight, I don't have a reason for that. It was just straight immaturity. And God was very nice and very patient and let me make my decisions. Um, and, and, and he took me step by step. I actually started with psychology because I said, I don't want to teach, but I want to work with kids, so I'll do psychology. God was nice. He said, that's cute. Go for that. And, and so I graduated with psychology, and then, and then I really felt like I should be a teacher. I said, okay, God, I hear you, but I'm going to be a public school teacher because there's, there's some stuff when you get too bogged down in some of those other things. And I just want to focus on, on students, and God said, that's great. Why don't you go get your master's? And, and how that process all worked was absolutely incredible. Uh, and, and so I graduated with that, and I said, yep, God, I'm, I'm almost doing what you want. I understand that, but we have an agreement, so we're good. I'm going to work in public school. I taught one year as a seventh grade science teacher. I had homeroom, but mostly got to do science. And so about every 55 minutes, the bell would ring, and 30 seventh graders would walk in, and I would try to teach them about science for 55 minutes. And then the bell would ring, and they would leave, and a whole new group of 30 students would come in. And, and when I was entering the report card or their grades, they didn't even write their name at the top of their paper. They wrote their ID number. So as I was grading a paper, I had no idea what their name even was until I entered it into a computer. And what I discovered was I wasn't given much of an ability to actually work with kids. I could, I could maybe teach science, even though that was really hard the way it was set up, but the connection with students was impossible. It was absolutely impossible. There ended up being about four kids that I really got connected with, but of the 130 that I was supposed to be working with, that's terrible. That's a terrible return on, on what you're after. And, and I remember saying, God, this isn't right. And so, in fact, I'm sure that he told me at that time, go to Adventist education. This is what I've been planning for you to do anyways. But, but me being a little bit slow, uh, I said, I'm so frustrated, I'm going to do construction. Because I had done that to get through school and all sorts of things. And, and so I started building a house. And you know, school gets done in summertime, which is fantastic. And, and you're outside in the sunshine. You're like, you know what? I could do this. This is not so bad. But I was up in Battleground, Washington, kind of Meadowglade. You know a person that's up there in Meadowglade now. And what he's discovering right, well, what he, he's at a better place now. But what he's learned up there is that it rains all winter. And winter is 10 months of rain, right? July and August are gorgeous. Everything else is a winter of rain. And so I started construction, and it was nice. But in about October, well, September, it started to get a little bit rainy. And about the first week of October, there were a couple things that happened. It was raining much more, but I also felt like I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. And I remember one day I was driving home. And I pulled off to the side of the road, and I said, God, I'm, I'm done being halfway. I'm done being halfway. I'm, I'm all in. Whatever you want. I had lots of friends, and I cared. Uh, I, don't, I didn't mean it that way. I meant I cared about all my friends probably more than anything else. As long as they thought what I was doing was kind of cool, that was the most important thing, right? And so we were, we were good friends, and we, we loved hanging out, and all that stuff was great. But, but clearly, that was more important than anything else. And that was the first time I pulled over and said, God, whatever you ask me to do, I'm all in. Crazy. The next day at about 10 a.m., I was working some construction, and my phone rang, and I picked it up, and there's this guy by the name of Kelly Bach, who was my high school principal, who was, who was the head of the Pacific Union for the education side of things, and he said, man, is this Jeff? 
oh, it's so good to talk with you. I've heard that you have a teaching certificate, and I'm in, I have the problem, the school. It's in Bishop, California. Uh, the, the teacher was just arrested, and we, we need somebody to get in there kind of quickly. If you could come for like a week or two, uh, that, would be, that would be perfect, just to kind of buy us some time. And I said, boy, a week or two is starting to rain. Construction's getting a little bit old. I also just prayed that prayer. I can do two weeks. And so I threw some stuff in the back of my car. I drove down there. A whole bunch of stuff happened. That's not really, really important. Well, it could be, but, but we want to keep on cruising. And, and so uh, what happened was God, I think personally, that God knew I wasn't going to be able to agree to a long term. So the first time it was two weeks, and then they asked for two weeks more. And then they asked for like three weeks more. Then they said, what about till Christmas? And then by Christmas, I had connected with those kids. And they were so excited that it was like, come on, Mr. J, let's just stay to the end of the year, man. This will be so good. The eighth graders, come on, you got to help me graduate, please. All right, all right, I'll, I'll stay the rest of the year. In, in springtime, then they started to say, what do you want to do next year? And it was like, oh, no, definitely not lots of prayer, lots of prayer, stayed for that next year, went home for the summer, and got back, and this is what really happened. I felt like God knew I was supposed to be there. I felt like God told me I was supposed to be there, but I, I remember driving back with about a week or two before school starts, that's about when teacher contracts are, and getting there and saying, I am all alone for a whole nother year. What are you doing, God? Like, this is great. I love working with these kids, but, but, but what are you doing to me? And so I did something kind of weird. We had a unique pastor in those days. Uh, his name was Pastor Wolford, and he, he was a very unique man. He was, we'd take him skiing, and he would do ski ballet, which is weird. Uh, and, and he did all sorts of kind of unique things. And, and he actually called me on when I kind of got back, and he said, hey, would you like to, I would love to hang out with you. He loved to run. Like, Loved to run like 20 or 30 miles. And he said, hey, hey, would you like to start running with me? So I ran with him a couple times, and I had run before, but it was only to kind of stay in shape for basketball and football and soccer and, and sports, right? But, and he just loved to run. And so I ran with him a couple times in the morning at like 5 in the morning so that I could still make it to school. And he said this to me, hey, hey, there's a marathon coming up, and it's on a Sunday. Would you like to run this marathon? It will be so, so, so fun. And, and I thought, I got nothing else going on, man. L at least then I'll have something to think about, like, outside of school. And, and so I said, sure, I'll, I'll sign up for this marathon. That's, a, that's such a good idea. And, he, and then he told me, like, a marathon is, like, 26 point something miles. And I was like, what? 26, 26 miles? Like, that's crazy. But I had gone and done, like, basketball tournaments all day on a Sunday where you play, like, five or six games. I'd gone and done, like, flag football tournaments where you play, like, three or four games. I said, it's a day. You just say, hey, today I'm running. And, and you just run for that day. Like, okay, I think I can do this, right? And, and so I tried to train, and probably the longest run that I ever had ever was with him, and it was about six miles. And I thought, like, that went okay. Just got to multiply that by something, and we'll be, uh, like, seven eight, we're, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. And, and, and so he said this to me. He said, hey, I know this family up in Mammoth Lakes, which is really why I wanted to go to Bishop, because there's Mammoth Mountain, which is an amazing ski and snowboard mountain. Uh, and, and so he said, I know this family. They're going to drive over there. It's in Susanville, California. It's about four or five hour drive. If you want to ride with them, that would be awesome. And, and so I said, sure, who are they? And they said, oh, it's this doctor. Here's his phone number. You can call him. And so I called him and said, hey, 
uh, I'm, I'm doing that marathon. Can I, can I ride with you? And he said, sure, meet us at such and such a time. So I drove up there, uh, jumped. They have a big black sequoia. It was filled with runners, filled with runners. And so I climbed all the way to the back, and, and we jump in the car, and we start cruising for hours, right? And they're mostly pretty dedicated runners, kind of unique people. Uh, a lot of them had shorts like to there and like no sleeves, and it seemed like they just went running before they got in the car, and you're thinking like, what's, <laughs> what's happening? Uh, and, and so we cruised that whole way. We got there Saturday night, took a, went to sleep, woke up uh, Sunday morning for the big giant marathon. They bus you up. It's, it's called the Biz Johnson. And so they bus you up. It's a rails to trails, right? So it used to be a train track that went through the forest, and now it's a trail. And so they bus you there, and then you run on the trail, which has got some downsides. If you run the Portland Marathon and you want to quit, you're in the middle of town. Go to a restaurant. You're fine. In, in that one, the Biz Johnson, if you want to quit, tough luck. There's no way out of there except to take the trail the rest of the way. Didn't know that until it started. But So they bus us up there. There were people, it was like, 30 degrees, 27 degrees. It was freezing cold, and people were wearing these freakishly short shorts and sleeveless things and just running back and forth before the race. And I was thinking, like, what is going on? People had taken garbage bags and, like, cut a head hole to put it on so they could stay warm before it and all sorts of things. And, and it was like, this is nuts. And this young man that had ridden in the car with us said, hey, you want to run with me? It's like, yeah, I do. I should have noticed again because he had those short shorts on. <laughs> that, like, I shouldn't run with him. That was a bad choice. But, but I was, like, 23 or something where you're invincible. So, so we got all ready. We started running, and it was going pretty good. Five miles. We were cruising. Six miles, cruising. Seven, eight, something like that. We went to an aid station at about mile eight or nine, and, and there were these drinks. And I remember seeing one and, like, going for it, but it, like, wasn't where I thought it was. I just seemed to keep missing it. And I thought, that's not so good. That's not so good. And, 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 and so I said, hey, why don't you go on ahead? I'm going to just take a second here. And so he was, sure. And he just took off running. And then I was like, whoo, I better do a little bit of walking. And, and so I'd walk some, I'd run some, I'd walk some, I'd run some. That was like mile 10, which if you're a math person, you know, that's not halfway there. It, I started to go more, and people were passing me, which is great, because it means there's humans, but then there was a time where nobody was passing me, and I would get to an aid station, and it was just a blank table with no people, and so I would be wise, and I would lay on that table for a long time, like, Jesus, what have you done to me? What, why am I here? And then I'd get off, and I'd keep on going, and, and I remember when there were like five miles left, and, and i describe it like this. It was like somebody had shoved swords all over into every part of my leg, just pure swords. Nothing felt good. And, and at about mile five, off in the distance, well, actually just before that, there was a big train tunnel where they had put candles in it for light. They had all burnt totally out. So I got to walk through a dark tunnel. It was super depressing. Um, but, but as I got to the other side, I looked out and I saw a human. I saw a human. I was like, I don't know, man. I reached for water. I've been missing the water. I think that's a human. And, and I looked more and I was like, no, no, I'm pretty sure that's a human. And I think they're coming towards me. And I didn't tell you a part about the drive because, because I, I rode with a guy who's, who's a neurologist and he and his wife drove, or he drove, and she sat up there, and, and there were a bunch of really unique people. And, and then in the back, it was me, and there was somebody beside me, because they had a daughter. Yeah. 
they had a daughter. And, and we had talked a little bit. I was kind of getting nervous when I heard these runners talk about what it takes to run a marathon. So I think in the car ride out there, I was just like, what in the world? Uh, but, but I looked off in the distance, and I couldn't quite tell who that was. And as I got closer, it was, in fact, their daughter. And, and, and what had happened was she ran a 5 or a 10K. Uh, and, and then I thought that she cared so much about me that she started hiking up the trail to check on me. I think the truth is they wanted to leave, and they couldn't drive off until I got done. But, but let's go with the first one. Let's pretend like she cared so much about me. And what she did is she hiked back up the trail. She found me, and she helped me kind of make it the last five miles. And you know, if you're like 23, it's like, I'm good. Yeah, I'm all right. And, and you're trying to act okay, but, but she caught on pretty quickly. Her, it's Andrea. That's Andrea. That's how Andrea and I got to meet Mrs. Jackson. It was so fun. It was so fun. And, and, and so we hobbled across the finish line. I crossed the finish line, and a couple people that were left cheered like I had done something great. What they were cheering was that they thought I was last and like, oh, thank goodness it's done. A lady tore her hamstring. I beat her. She, it took... <laughs> It took like 10 more minutes before she crossed the finish line. <laughs> Boom. So good. So good. When we tell a story, when we think of a story, every detail plays an important role. Because if that marathon story doesn't have that last piece, I hate marathons. I've done two. I hate them both so much. I absolutely hate them. That was still probably the greatest human day of my entire life. Because it's, it's where I met my wife, right? What if that pastor had said, hey, go run a marathon? i say, that's a terrible idea. That would be telling the truth. That's a terrible idea. I'm not going to do it. I may not have ever, ever met her. I certainly wouldn't have been crammed in a car with her. I certainly wouldn't have walked the last five miles. And then the most amazing thing, sit in the car next to her sweaty and horrific smelling for five hours as we drove back. If she can survive that, this is somebody I should get to know. This is somebody I should get to know. And, and that, that whole experience ended up being one of the greatest experiences of my entire life. I would call it a part of an epic walk for me because it's where something huge happened. And I don't think by on any shadow of a doubt that that was luck. I absolutely believe that God said, I know what's going to happen in your future and you need a partner. You need somebody that's going to be in the trenches with you. You need somebody that's going to be a part of everything that you're going to do. And that step of faith to go back to Bishop allowed that to happen. That step of stupidity to run the marathon allowed that piece to happen. We don't know what God is doing. We don't know what God is doing until we see it, right? We can look backwards and raise our Ebenezer right? We, we see, oh, that's how God did it. And they raised their Ebenezer because there were two reasons, mostly. Every time they walked past it, they wanted the kids to say, mom, why is that there? And mom or dad would retell the story of how God did something incredible. That, that was awesome. The other piece is that when they were having a hard time with their own faith, is God really there? They would see it and say, no, he was there before. Of course he's still going to pull us through. Of course he's still going to pull us through. And so I want to I talk about some epic walks. In fact, just one. And, and we know in the Bible there's a couple of them. In fact, in Genesis, when, when Adam and Eve get busted, God is on a walk. He's walking through the garden, right? It says that Adam and Eve heard God walking through the garden, and, and so they hid in shame. God was out for a walk. I bet that was an epic walk. 
God walking through the garden? We know Enoch. Enoch was walking uh, so close with God that one day he just disappeared, right? That's an epic walk. That's an unbelievable epic walk. One of my favorites and my students uh, that I've taught before, they would say, hey, you always got to remember this one, Balaam and his donkey. That wasn't really a walk, but it was still epic. It was absolutely, it was a mode of transportation that was fantastic. Uh, Saul on the road to Damascus. What? That's a crazy epic walk. Um, Moses and, and crossing the Red Sea. Joshua and Jericho. We have all those sorts of things. The one I want to look at today uh, is in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, and I promise you that you've all heard this before. I hope that we can dive into it just a little bit deeper, and I want to get a running start at it before we get too much into that, because here's what happens. This is what's going on in Jesus and his disciples' life. Uh, John the Baptist just got killed. He just got beheaded, right? That's not, a, that's not a real big faith builder of this is all going really, really well. John the Baptist is beheaded. Jesus hears about that and tries to get off into a boat, but the people mob him, and, and the very next thing that he does is feed 5,000, right? So, so he's heard about this, John the Baptist being killed. They've heard about it. They just had a mob of people attack them when they wanted to be alone. They preached to them, and then they feed the 5,000. And just after that, that's where we take off right here. So in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, and we'll kind of read through it and then jump back into it really quick. It says, immediately after this, Jesus made his disciples get back in the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he, and, while he sent the people home. Afterwards, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far off from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came to them walking on water. When the disciples saw him, they screamed in terror, thinking he was a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once. It's all right, he said. I'm here. Don't be afraid. Then Peter called out to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you by walking on water. All right, come, Jesus says. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water towards Jesus. But when he looked around and he saw the high waves, he was terrified and he began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Instantly, Jesus reached out his hand and grabbed him. You don't have much faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? And when they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped and the disciples worshiped him then. We've probably all read that, and we've probably read that at close to that speed. And I remember being taught, truthfully, in Adventist school that what was wrong with Peter? How could he have done this? What a failure this Peter guy was then. That is so bad. But I think if you read through the story, that's not exactly how that goes. And in fact, there's this dude named John Ortberg who wrote a book. It's pretty good. It's called If You Want to Walk on Water you got to get out of the boat. This is a game changer for me. I read this fairly regularly. I'll be honest. I read the first two chapters regularly. I don't know that I've ever made it to the end, but the first two chapters are so good that I'm usually pretty well ready for whatever adventure God has next. And so I want to I take some uh, time to kind of cruise through that because there's some really important things. In verse 22, it says, immediately after this, Jesus made the disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. That's kind of weird to me. Why is Jesus forcing the disciples to get into a boat? 
probably a couple things. Jesus really wanted alone time. He's wanted it for a couple of days ever since he heard that John the Baptist was dead. He wanted some alone time with his father, but maybe he had a plan for his disciples too. Because I actually think God works on multiple levels all at once, right? What he's doing in my life, he's doing in your life and, your li- and, and all of our different lives. And maybe there's a common point in it where, where things are happening, but it's affecting us all vastly differently. And so Jesus, knowing that he needed some alone time, he sent the disciples out for an opportunity because all he was about with the disciples was growing their faith. And guess what? All about that with us might still be the truth because he knows if we have epic faith, we will be unstoppable. And faith just means believing in him, believing that Jesus was, is real, that he died and he, he's back alive and he's got our back and all those things. And so he sends them out. Afterwards, he sit up, went up into the hills by himself to pray, praying for hours. If we just did that, that would be huge. Night fell while he was there alone. And while he's there praying, the disciples were in trouble far away from land. Who sent them into this trouble? Like if I'm the disciples and I'm in there fighting this storm, I promise you that words that would come out of my mouth is, what was Jesus thinking? That's me being honest. I've said those words lots. I said that, I just mentioned in that story, I know I said that lots of times. What are you thinking, Jesus? I feel like I did what you wanted me to do, but this is not how I think this is supposed to go. The disciples were fishermen, so you can imagine that when they were first out there and the wind came, they weren't scared. In fact, some probably like, oh, I'm so, and Peter probably made fun of them. Oh, whatever. I've been fishing for a long time. This is nothing. I've seen this before. Oh, sit over there and just cower in fear. I'll handle this. Me and my brothers of fishermen here, we're going to handle this. But then it kept getting worse. And it kept getting worse. And it kept getting worse until even Peter and the fishermen are actually terrified. All the while, Jesus is praying, right? That's pretty huge. About three o'clock in the morning, about three o'clock in the morning, have you, uh, I don't, three o'clock in the morning doesn't sound like the right time. It sounds like perhaps the storm, it doesn't say, but I would imagine that if, if there were more words in here that the storm started earlier and the disciples had been fighting for a long time. And my guess is that at three o'clock in the morning was when they were at their, the end of their rope. It was when they had really, really, really become absolutely flustered and said, we can't do this anymore. Because often that's when Jesus appears. That's when Jesus comes and finds us. When we say, I can't do this, Jesus says, thank you, I've been waiting on that. I've got you. I've got the whole thing covered. Here, here let, me, let me be there. And so Jesus, knowing that they're in trouble, knowing that they're close to the end of the rope, probably knowing that they're about to finally give in, started cruising out their direction, not with a boat. He's just walking on the stormy waves. And, and when he arrives... The disciples say, ah, Jesus comes to their rescue, and the very first thing that they say is, it's a ghost. I I don't know that we're supposed to believe too much in ghosts, and so for the disciples to be screaming, that's a ghost, that that to me is, is pretty amazing. These are humans. These aren't superhumans. These are just normal humans like us, which to me, pretty helpful, pretty helpful. We, the, the standard for being used by God, pretty low. If, if you're in, he's in. 
right? You don't have to check a bunch of boxes. If you're in, he's in. Jesus arrives, and they're terrified. They think that he's a ghost. And he says the, the, probably the most quoted sentence in the entire Bible. Don't be afraid. Be not afraid. It's every time a, an angel came down, every time an angel came and met with a person, the very first thing that that angel was required to say was, don't be afraid. We're so quick to be afraid. Even when Jesus showed up, their first reaction was fear. It's all right. I'm here, he said. I'm here. Don't be afraid. Then Peter called to him. And this is the part that we want to talk about just a little bit. Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you by walking on water. And I'm not entirely sure what Peter was thinking. I'm not sure if he said, thank goodness it's Jesus. I don't want anything to do with anything else. I just want to be super close to Jesus. Jesus, can I come to you? Is it okay? And Jesus says, absolutely. You can always come to me, Peter. And so Peter just jumps out. And, and in here is just a sentence I'm hoping that was like three or four minutes where Peter and Jesus just locked eyes and they're just cruising out there, right? And, and nothing in the entire world matters at all to Peter because he's looking at his Savior. But then, like always for the rest of us, we take these steps of faith. We, we, God asks us to do something and we say, yes, I'll do it. And, and, and we take those steps and we feel the Holy Spirit in us and like, woo, this feels good. This is amazing. And then you get a text that says like, hey, just so you know, this isn't working. And then you get a phone call. Hey, just so you know, this isn't working. And then, then you get an email. Hey, just so you know, there's like 800 things falling apart. And you start to say, oh no, this is impossible. I can't walk on water. Th this thing that was asked of me, I just can't do. That's not possible. And, and so you start to sink. And you start to sink pretty quick. But guess what happens even quicker? It says, so Peter went over the side of the boat, but when he looked around at the high waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, he shouted, instantly. How long did it take Jesus? Instantly, instantly, Jesus reached out his hand and grabbed him and said, you don't have much faith. And, and that's a Bible terminology. I think it went something like this. I've got you. You can always trust me. You don't ever have to doubt, Peter. I always have you. We read, you don't have much faith, and it sounds kind of condescending, and maybe it was. Maybe Jesus is like, dude, I've done a lot for you. You should catch on here. It's going to be okay. I actually think perhaps Jesus thought to all the disciples, you have the power to calm the storm yourself. You shouldn't have had to wait for me to walk over here. If you would have been praying like I was just praying up on the hill, if you guys would have been doing this, you've got to calm the storm yourself. Jesus said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped, and they worshiped him there. I, I was kind of told that Peter, growing up, that Peter messed up. Peter kind of didn't do so good, and the rest of the disciples stayed where they belonged, but Peter always wanted to do something extra always quick. He was the guy that chops off a person's ear that Jesus has to put back on. He's the person that argues with Jesus. I'm never going to deny you. And Jesus said, yeah, you are. No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. No, and it just keeps on going. That's Peter. He's a little quick. He's a little quick to say what's going to happen. And, and I thought that same thing. But think of yourself a week later as every other disciple. And I bet every other disciple said, I wish I walked on water. I wish, I, I wish Jesus reached down and pulled me out of the water and then walked with me back into the boat. 
that walking on water is an epic walk because Jesus was right there with him. I don't think that any of us need to walk on water in the next long time. I I can't imagine too many scenarios where that's going to be important. But an epic walk with Jesus, an epic step of faith where you check, hey, Jesus, what do you want? And Jesus says, come to me. I've got you. And taking a step that's terrifying, but you're so focused on Jesus, you forget that it's terrifying, and you're away from your comfort zone, and then all of a sudden you start to look around and see all that fear, and people tell you that it's not going to work, and, and all these other things happen. That's called walking with Jesus. It's actually what he wants us to do all the time, is take these epic walks of impossibility. And, and when we go to sync, we can always remember that Jesus is there to grab us and pull us out. And, and so this next, the rest of this year, for me, it's all about students and it's all about schools. And I'm crazy excited to step out of a comfortable boat that really isn't that comfortable as a superintendent, but step out of a comfortable boat and, into, into Rogue Valley Adventist Academy. And there's going to be times where we're walking on water and, and, and all we see is Jesus and we say, this is all going great. But there's going to be other times. There's going to be other times where we say, oh, this is impossible. How is this going to work? I think in the Bible, Jesus says, hey, you need to come, you need to become like children. And and not all of our students are children, but what we know about young kids is if you say, that'll work, they say, giddy up, let's do it, right? You can convince a small kid that if they had wings, they could probably fly with them, right? And they would say, okay, I think of our kids when we're parents and they're little and they trust everything. And then they reach an age where whatever you tell them, they don't believe any of it right? It happens almost instantaneously. We want to have that faith that God has our back. We want to have that faith that that is God's school. We want to have the faith that this is God's church. These are each one of us are children of God. Those are God's students. And because of just that, even if that's all we had, nothing is impossible. So I'm crazy excited. July 1 is, is circled. It's got explosions all around it. If I were to tell you the truth, I'm actually, I think I'm on Lake Shasta, so I'm not going to be that useful when it first happens. Uh, but, but, but it's going to be crazy exciting because working with these students has been the highlight of my year, and I can't wait to continue to do it. And, and, and I can't wait to have an army of people praying for each one of them and for God to do incredible things. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your dedication to so many things, your youth groups and your Sabbath schools and hikes and all the activities that happen. Um, There's going to be a time when we get to heaven that people are going to come up. I believe this with all my heart. People are going to come up to to you and say, I'm here because of you. And you're going to say, I never even met you. And he said, no, but you supported this, this, and this, and that changed my life, and and God revealed that to me. God, God told me about that. And and I want to say thank you for your willingness to do that. It's going to be a game changer. It's why we get to celebrate for eternity, because there's going to be things to celebrate for an eternity when we get to heaven. And it's going to be amazing. And the greatest of all of it, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is going to be each one of those students that are up there that say, thank you. Thank you for what you were able to do to keep Adventist education going and have activities in our church. So thank you for for being amazing, church. Uh, I can't wait to continue to work with you, uh, can work with these students. I'd love to have a word of prayer, but then it's even better because our, our high school jumps back up for a round of bells for the posted. Let's bow our heads.
Dear God, you are an amazing God, and whether we're still walking on water and feeling great, or whether we're sinking, or maybe we're still sitting in the boat, we want to give it all to you, and we just want to, we want to reach out to you and walk with you and go wherever you call us to go. So Lord, I know, we know that you have huge plans, huge, miraculous plans, and so we just want to have you be the leader, have you be the person in charge, uh, so that all incredible things are done through your power. So we give it all to you. Uh, I thank you for these amazing students as they get to play some more bells. Thank you for the gifts that you've given them. And God, we just lift up the Sabbath day to you. Thank you for being an amazing God. Amen.